Thank you, Dan and Janice. I believe I noticed that Janice arranged both of those numbers that were sung tonight. I don't know if you ever pay attention to that, but there are not a lot of churches. You can go in and see that your pianist has arranged the piece, and Janice arranged both those pieces, and, uh, and Dan sang them beautifully. Thank you, Dan and Janice, for, for that tonight. Worship is something you take for granted until someone takes it away from you. I was talking to Jeff Rains at First Baptist Church Shreveport, and the governor has already said that churches over a certain size can't meet, and his church falls in that category, and the projected date is past Easter. So this week, Jeff Rains learned he would have no Easter unless he can split up the crowd and find another way to do it, or I think it was 250 or so above, and so don't take tonight for granted. Don't take that singing for granted. Don't take God's word preached for granted. It is something that seems ho-hum sometimes until someone says, you can't do it. So, and I understand, and we will be cooperative if we have to, but the reality is uh, enjoy what it means to gather with God's people and certainly want to keep everybody safe. And I get that it's complex, but just... Just don't take worship for granted. If you, someone had told you six months ago that tonight I'd be saying, you might not be allowed to be here next week, you wouldn't have believed that I said that. Not blaming anybody, but that's where we are. And it's scary, and it makes us appreciate the ability to come here and to gather and to worship. We find ourselves in Acts 17, and there's nothing more comforting than being in a routine. And we're in Acts 17, so turn to Acts 17. Our second missionary journey, we have a map from last time. Uh, we were up at Philippi, up the top left there. Uh, remember, we, there we go, leave it right there in that view. Uh, we had gone through, they went by land this time most of the way, and while at Troas, he heard the Macedonian call to come over to Macedonia, and uh, we're going to find ourselves moving down into the Grecian area now, uh, but up there at Philippi, and now we're going to go through Amphipolis to Apollonia to Thessalonica to Berea and all the way to Athens if we make it through the chapter but you can see how we're traveling uh, southwest as we go uh, across the map. Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy in Philippi, remember there we had Lydia, the seller of purple, and we had the Philippian jailer, and that family saved, baptized, start the church at Philippi. And now they head from Philippi to the major seaport city. You can see Thessalonica there. If you can see it is on the sea. It was a major then and now a seaport city. It was a hundred miles distance there. If you see Philippi, it's a hundred miles to Thessalonica and it's 30 miles from Philippi to Amphipolis and 30 miles to Apollonia and 30 miles to Thessalonica. If they did it on horse, they might have done it in three days, 30 miles in a clip per day. If they did it walking, it took them longer than that. And sure, they stopped at some little villages in between. But Luke doesn't give us the names of any of those other little villages they went to. Thessalonica, 100 miles away from Philippi, 
was the perfect size for a city to be. It had 200,000 folks who were the citizens of Thessalonica, and that's like a good-sized city uh, to me. It was a free city. It was given that status in 42 B.C., which means it was allowed some self-governance, some self-rule, and they could not always have to look to Rome for every decision uh, because they were known for keeping law in order. Well, let's look at the first nine verses, and we'll make our way through those and go through. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis, 30 miles from Philippi, 30 more miles, and Apollonia, they came to 30 more miles, Thessalonica, city on the sea, major port city, 100 miles from Philippi, 200,000 people there, a free city. There was a synagogue of the Jews. The first thing that Paul always looked for when he went to a city, his modus operandi was to find a synagogue of the Jews and go and try to convince the Jews that the rabbi Jesus was the Christos, the Christ. And so in Thessalonica, we know there are enough Jewish men to have a synagogue, and so that's where he goes. And according to Paul's custom, that's just what I said. Now Luke tells you. According to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, he was there at most a month because he didn't make four Sabbaths. You with me? So, three Sabbaths. So, the next time you read First and Second Thessalonians, you need to read it with the view that they got a lot of questions because he wasn't there long. He was there just long enough to convince them that this rabbi by the name of Jesus was the Messiah, but he wasn't there long enough to answer all their questions. And so, for example, in 1 Thessalonians, we have that wonderful passage in chapter 4, verse 12 and following, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. Well, what happened was they had said that Rabbi Jesus was the Christ, and then their grandmother died before Jesus returned, and, and Paul had been there long enough to convince them that Rabbi Jesus was a Christ and that he was coming back for his people, but he didn't have time to teach them what happens to the dead. And so they're worried. Is Grandma going to miss the kingdom of God? No, no, I wasn't there long enough. I don't, don't think like that. Here's the way it's going to happen. And so he answers the question. So when you read 1 Thessalonians, read it in mind of Acts 17, that Paul was there, but he was there a short while, and thus they have lots of questions on their mind. Well, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Usually what he does, he explains in verse 3, is when he meets with the Jews in the synagogue, he explains to them that this Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah. He shows them the Old Testament passages like Isaiah 53 and others that say that he had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Don't you wish we had just one of those sessions recorded where Paul is sitting down and walking through the Scriptures and showing them that this Rabbi Jesus is the Christ and that Scriptures have said that he must suffer and rise again. It's sort of what Jesus did to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in the resurrected form. He started back with Moses and walked them through the Scriptures. I wish we had that one to be sure. We have neither, but we can imagine what passages he would have used. 
Well, he goes to the synagogue. It's the Sabbath. They're gathered. What happens? Some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Some Jews, that is. And the God-fearing Greeks. Remember, God-fearers were those who enjoyed worshiping the Jewish God but weren't ready to be circumcised or observe all the Jewish dietary laws or the holy calendar, and a number of leading women. Well, you should hear that leading women. You're going to see that again in these cities, in this particular part of the world at the time, particularly Macedonia and, and Greece. We have women playing leadership roles. Who was the key of the Philippian church, the church of Philippi, when there wasn't a synagogue? Who seemed to be in charge? And whose house did they meet? Lydia, right? So women keep being mentioned in Macedonia. So there you go. He tells specifically, we had some Jews converted. We had some God-fearing Greeks converted. And we had some leading women. Well, they were leading women because it was Macedonia where women had some authority and status. And we're thankful for that. And then verse 5. But things are going well. Goes to Thessalonica. Goes to the synagogue. Convinces many that this rabbi by the name of Jesus is the Christ, and well, but the Jews do what they did throughout Acts. They became jealous. And taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, your translation may say something different than wicked men, uh, unsavory fellows, thugs, the mob, they go down and hire some strong arms to run Paul out of town. That's the way you put it. They found the mob of Thessalonica, those guys who will beat up anybody for a price, and said, there's a guy, go get him, run him out of town. They formed a mob with these marketplace thugs, and they came for Paul. They set the city in an uproar. They came to the house of Jason. Now, who is Jason? Jason, we don't know anything about Jason other than what you have, have right here. Apparently, he was converted. He believed that Jesus was the Christos, the Christ. And, well, Paul was staying at his house. And Paul happened to be gone when the thugs showed up from the market. And they draggled Jason out to get a beating. That's just being at the wrong time in the wrong place. Jason, had, Jason hadn't done anything. But Jason, you got to beat somebody. And Jason answered the door. So they take Jason. Look, they did not find Paul and Timothy and Silas. They began dragging Jason, verse 6. Now, Jason's probably thinking, I just called Jesus Lord yesterday, and here I go, getting beat today. Some brethren before the city authorities shouting, these men who've upset the whole world have come here also. What a great word that those proclaiming Jesus as the Christ had the power to upset the whole world. We're still trying to upset the whole world. Jason has welcomed them. That's all he did. Let them stay in his house. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Isn't that exactly at the trial of Jesus what was said about him? They couldn't say that he blasphemed, that he claimed to be the Christ. And so the charge, at least before Pilate, is he says he's a king. 
You can't be a friend of Caesar's and let Jesus go because he's acting like a new king. Are you the king of the Jews? That's the question. So if you're a Roman citizen, you're supposed to have only one king, and that is Caesar. And so they say these guys have set the city in an uproar. They've set the world upside down, and they're claiming there is a new man on the throne by the name of Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. They received a pledge from Jason and the others. They released them. Now, really, what's kind of telling is that the city authorities... Jason, will you stop doing this? Yes, sir. He's free. They kind of run Paul and company out of town. They're really discerning. They realize there's no real political threat here. And so the city authorities are discerning, and they let them go. They released them. Now, so we've gone from Philippi. We've traveled 30 miles to Amphipolis. We don't know what happened there. We spent the night at Apollonia, Thessalonica. And now we're going to go about 50 miles down south to Berea. 50 miles down south to Berea. Let's begin in verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. They go by night because it's safest to escape then. When they arrived, where do you know he's going to go? To the synagogue of the Jews. You've got the pattern now. Uh, you, you wonder if Luke's taking a little dig here in verse 11. Now, they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They were a better lot than those in Thessalonica. They were open-minded folks, noble-minded the idea, this language here, this would have been about a three days journey to Berea, but the language here is they were open, they were tolerant, they were willing to learn, they were willing to listen, they were willing to hear, they were willing to converse, they were willing to have a conversation about the scriptures. They were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Now, it does not say that they were utterly convinced. It says that they were eager. Here was Paul, a Jew, a Pharisee, giving them the teachings. He's in Berea, and they're at least willing to examine the scriptures that they know to see whether this rabbi Jesus might just be the Messiah, the Christ, the Holy One of Israel. And so with great eagerness, they, look, examined the Scriptures. And they weren't just meeting on the Sabbath. They were doing this daily. They were so excited about Jesus might be the Christ. They gathered daily to meet with Paul. I love that. To see whether these things were so. Now, we're going to see the difference in a minute when we get to Athens. But when Paul is dealing with Jews in the synagogue, where does he start his conversation? With Scripture, with the Old Testament. 
Now remember, there is no New Testament. We're writing the New Testament. We're, we're actually acting out the New Testament. Nobody's even writing it yet. That there, he, this is what these are actually the travels that are taking place. So when they're looking at the scriptures, it's simply the, the law and the, the prophets and the writings. It's, it's the Old Testament. And so they're looking at the Old Testament to see whether or not Jesus might be the Christ. When you're talking to a Jew, Paul begins with scripture. When he's talking to a Gentile, they don't believe in the Jewish scriptures. It does no good to say, well, don't you know what Isaiah says? He starts with philosophy and rational thought, as we will see when he comes to Athens. Many of them, therefore, believed. Well, look at verse 4 of 17. In Thessalonica, what happened? Some of them were persuaded. These words are chosen carefully. The Bereans are more open-minded, so it's not some of them. It's how many of them? Many of them were persuaded. Many, therefore, believed, along with a number of prominent who? Greek what? There they are again. Can't keep those ladies in Greece in check. Greek women and men. Notice the women are mentioned first. The, in Macedonia and Greece, the women had uh, some freedom, and we are, we are grateful for that. But notice the women mentioned, mentioned first, not by accident. Every time Luke tells a story, when he gives us that adversative conjunction, but something bad's about to happen or something good's about to happen, but you're about to go the other way on the river. You can be sure of that. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there likewise agitating and stirring up the crowds. Those Jews in Thessalonica, they were not very nice fellows. When they found out that Paul was having success in Berea, they mind their own business, stay in their own city. No, no, they travel all the way down to Berea and they agitate the crowd, the ones who had hired the mob, the thugs. They look for the mafia there in Berea and do the same thing, stirring up the crowd. So what does Paul have to do? Immediately the brethren sent Paul out as far as the sea. Silas and Timothy, and Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Now those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So now we've gone to Berea, now we've got to get in the boat. We're going a long way now, all the way down to Athens. You see it? And so they get Paul there, put him on the boat, conduct him, and take him down to Athens. Well, Athens is different, isn't it? You don't go to the Jewish synagogue to persuade the Jews. You're amongst the Gentiles, and you're amongst the learned Gentiles. It was the place where all the philosophers dwelt. Now, it it had left its golden age that was found around the B.C. period, let's say the 4th and 5th centuries B.C., when it was the center of everything. The great teachers were there. Corinth had now become, see Corinth now, if you come on down, we're headed there in a bit. Not tonight, you'll be glad to know, but we're eventually going to make it to Corinth. <laughs> but they go to, the, to, they're in Athens, but Athens, Corinth is now the main city as far as business and politics, but Athens is still the city in regard to culture and education. Now, I couldn't think in the United States what two cities you would pick. I could do it for Russia, and Russia, Moscow is business and politics, and St. Petersburg is culture and art 
and learning. You, you see? So some places, two cities, one is the power and the other is the mind or the art or the culture. And so it was. And so Athens now was quite a bit smaller than it had been in the B.C. period, but it still was the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. The art was magnificent. The architecture was the kind of place that I would have loved, and it was fabulous. And unfortunately, all this fabulous architecture was temples to gods and goddesses that I wouldn't have loved, but the buildings were, were beautiful. The art, in fact, often sort of portrayed the exploits of the gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon as they were being victorious and in their battles and their conquest, and that was what was depicted in all this beautiful art. Well, you can imagine Paul being a Jew, being a monotheist, believing in only one God. Now he's entered a city, and there's all these temples and all these altars to all these different gods and goddesses, and the Jews are against the idols and how distasteful it would be to Paul. It was absolutely overwhelming for him to see all these places of worship and altars to the city, look at, back at verse 16, the city full of idols. So, notice verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, waiting for his missionary companions, Timothy and Silas, his spirit was being provoked within him. He was upset. He was beholding the city full of idols. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. So on the Sabbath, he does go to the synagogue and reason with the Jews. But his everyday event is not the synagogue. It is in the marketplace, isn't it? It is in the agora, this center, this hub of Athenian life, the marketplace, and there all the philosophers gathered, the Epicureans gathered. That was a major school. And the Epicureans were thoroughgoing materialists. Everything came from particles of matter. And there was no life beyond this life. Resurrection of the dead would not have appealed to them or been a thought on their mind. And this life was all that there was. And once you died, you were dead. And they didn't say that gods didn't exist, but the gods really were totally indifferent to anything taking place in humanity. And then you had the Stoics there. Look at verse 18. Some were Epicurean and some were Stoic philosophers. So you had the Epicureans, though materialists. You live, you die, the gods aren't that important. And then you had the Stoics who, well... They had a more lively view of the gods than the Epicureans. They believed in a divine essence and presence. They were actually pantheists, meaning that there was this divine principle in matter and divine principle in humans. And we all had this sort of central thing called logos, which was why well, we have John 1 in the beginning was the Logos, this idea of this cohesive rational principle that kept the entire cosmos ordered together and the humans could realize their fullest potential, the Stoics said, when you live by reason, when you live by the Logos. So, verse 17. 
He's reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews, the God-fearing Gentiles, the marketplace, the Agora, every day with those who happen to be present. There are also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who were conversing with him, and they were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? What in the world is he talking about? Idle babbler is literally translated seed speaker. In other words, he's talking about strange stuff about dead people coming alive in the body. Now, that would have made sense to no one. No one. For the Epicureans believed when you were dead, you were dead. And the Stoics believed that your spirit was like a bird in a cage. Your body was a cage. And when you died, it left and was set free. And none of them in the Greek philosophy schools would have thought anything about a corporal bodily resurrection. That was the strangest thing they had ever heard. And so they called him a a seed spreader, a babbler. It's the idea of a chicken in the barnyard doesn't know what he's talking about, just picking on seeds, picking on some here, picking on some there. What is this, Paul? He's a seed speaker. He's pecking around like a chicken. He's indiscriminate what he's saying. We have no idea what he's talking about. The bodily resurrection was a new thing to them. Then others said, verse 18, he seems to be the proclaimer of some strange deities, like Anastasia, a goddess called Resurrection. Is that what he's talking about? Is he trying to introduce a new goddess by the name Resurrection? Is he trying to introduce a new god by the name of Jesus? So a god and a goddess, Jesus and, and Anastasia, Resurrection, they say. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is, it is a place where they would meet and they would begin to talk and study things. It was both a court and a hill. And uh, the equivalent, you might say, in Roman was the god of Mars. Ares is the god. So the Areopagus, it was the hill of the god Ares, or your King James Version calls it Mars Hill because that's the Roman equivalent here. And Paul begins there before the court. Now, it's not that he's in trouble and he's not on trial, but they bet every day. Now, uh, we got any professors in here? We can make fun of you just a little bit, but that's what universities do. They just sit all day and talk about new ideas. Uh, the rest of us have to work, but they gather and they talk about new ideas, and that's what they did. Men of Athens, they gathered together at the Areopagus, and they met every day because they want to talk about new ideas. They said, verse 20, you're bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know what those things mean. Look at verse 21. I'm not making fun of the universities. Paul is. Look here. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They're writing journal articles and things that don't matter and nobody's going to read because that's what you do when you're in Athens. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe you're religious in all respects. Now, when you start a speech with somebody you're trying to convince, you start with the point of what? Contact. I can tell you guys are religious. Man, look at all these temples. Look at all these altars. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar to the inscription to an unknown God. And what you don't know, I'll tell you about. I'll tell you who that God is. Now, the story goes 
that the Athenians had had a plague a long time ago. <laughs> there we go. And they prayed to be relieved from the plague. And when they were relieved from the plague, they took a, a herd of sheep and they let them loose. And wherever the sheep sat down, they sacrificed the sheep right there and named a god or a goddess. They were thinking every god or goddess because the plague was over. And they ran out of gods and goddesses. So they just said, well, we're just going to sacrifice this sheep right here to a what? Unknown god. Well, this god you don't know about, I know about. And let me tell you about him, he says. What you worship in ignorance, verse 23, I proclaim to you the God who made the world. Now, you can't begin with Jewish scriptures if you're talking to a Gentile philosopher. You start with what? Creation. Because we're here, and how do we get here? You don't know, but let me tell you. The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. You've got all these temples, but the God who created all this, he doesn't dwell in temples, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all life and breath to all things. And he made from one every nation of humankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries and habitations. I'm talking to you about one God. They would have no idea like that. They had so many gods and goddesses. There is one God who created. He needs nothing from you. He's made all the nations and set the boundaries. And they should seek God. Perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move, and I still like the King James here, and have our being. And even some of your own poets. Now, that's Erastus or Cleanthus. One of their poets is being quoted there. He not only made a point of contact, he goes back and quotes one of their poets. that says, there is a God in whom we live and move and have our being. Being then the offspring of God. We ought to think uh, that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. It's not like that. An image informed by art or thought of man. But having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now declared that men, that all everywhere should repent. Now he's gotten to preaching. God's creator, don't worry about the Jewish scriptures. You don't know anything about that. But he did create and you are a sinner and you need to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world and the righteousness to a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof by all men by raising him from the dead. And they start laughing. There he is, the back to that goddess of resurrection. What is he talking about, the resurrection from the dead? We were here last Sunday night with a room full talking about the importance of the bodily resurrection. And the reality is, the body resurrection, the bodily resurrection says that God loves all of us, body, mind, and soul. There is no part of us that isn't his creation. There is no part of us that will not be redeemed, that we are part of his creation. It is good, and our bodies will be transformed and renewed, but they are important. And when he's talked about a bodily resurrection, they were thinking about reanimated corpses, and that seemed silly to them. Now look at verse 32. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, they began to snicker. And others said, man, we want to hear some more about this. So Paul went out of their midst. Not many, but some. But some men joined him, 
and believed. Among them were Dionysius, the Areopagite, one of the members of the court, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. When you don't know anything of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Moses, meaning the Torah, you do know he created. You do know men need to repent. You do know men will be judged. And you do know that the one who's doing the judging is the one who's been appointed by God, having been bodily resurrected from the dead. That's the center of it all for Paul, that he was crucified and that he rose bodily from the dead. That when you look, as we will when we approach Easter, at the resurrection narratives, the angels are always saying, look and see. They grab his feet. It's all about body. Look, touch, see, come and see. The tomb is empty. Look where he's been. He's gone. Not a, not a spirit that's ascended to heaven, that's set free like a bird out of the cage but an utter transformation of his body living again. And some believed a member of the court and a woman. We kind of come back to the woman thing, don't we? Demarius believed. And I can't remember all their names, Luke says, but there were some others. Let's pray. Oh, God, give us your grace and your peace. We need your comfort. We need your sovereignty. Oh, God, we need your guidance, your wisdom. We need your shalom, your peace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.